Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. We live in a culture obsessed with the spectacle of youth. Media companies fight to seek the attentions of young people, advertising is dominated by millennials with wrinkle free flesh, and older people are not sexy, exciting, or interesting in this mix, we're told. But today's 70-somethings were the rebellious children of the 60s. Those approaching their bus pass years were the ravers of the second summer of love. The future of ageing today is a very different beast. In some parts of the UK, the needs of older people are being addressed. Wales and Northern Ireland even have commissioners for older people. Both here and elsewhere, there are huge gaps. One in five Britons will be over 65 by 2030, with the fastest growing age group being the over 85s. What are the implications for us as a country with an increasingly ageing population? What are the issues that need challenging and policies that need changing? And how should we think about ourselves as ageing people? With me to discuss all this today is Tim Whitaker. He's Vice Chair of Positive Ageing London, Director of Wise Age, a leading age and employment charity, and a consultant who specialises in policy and communication issues affecting older people. Hi there, Tim, and thanks for joining me in the bunker today. Thank you very much. Looking forward to contributing as an age activist, I think I will call myself today. Oh, I like that. Age activism. That's a a very good term for it. So let's start with some statistics. I've already mentioned the staggering fact that one in five Britons will be over 65 by 2030, which is something I found out from your work. Could you summarise for us how older people's lives have changed in recent decades? Well, I think the big issue is that people are living longer, people are working longer, and therefore there's an expectation that sort of old age isn't something that will be curtailed. But I think the big problem is that the spectre for a lot of people is that you potentially can have a 100-year life. The stats show that if you're born in 2018 and you're a a woman, you about 30% are likely to be living to 100. Now, when you're 100, you get a telegram from the Queen. That will probably change because there will be too many centenarians who will be (laughs) in a position where they sort of have reached that position. So it it is slightly relative. I think the big problem that is faced is that we haven't really looked at a policy or a discussion across the UK on aging. We've 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 dabbled with over the period of time about older people and the problems, but we haven't looked at it in its totality. And I think that the danger is that the advent of older age and older people is often seen as a kind of burden. It's seen as that there's a lot of costs involved, vulnerability, and that there's going to be difficulties. And I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because actually there are a lot of different issues which we'll go on to discuss, I'm sure. Is there fear in there as well? You know, people don't want to confront their own mortality or think ahead too too much, really. Yeah, I mean, I think there are people who probably feel that age isn't relevant to them. 
they kind of feel that they can be doing things as before. There are clearly people who are bothered about ill health. And remember that one of the biggest issues which cuts across both younger people and older people is that there are vast inequalities still. And Mm. so therefore your health is pretty much preordained earlier on in your life when you get to old age. So there will be people who have healthy, vibrant periods of old age, and then there will be people who suffer. And I think the big problem is you don't lump everybody together, that you've got to kind of look at what different needs are around the country, and in particular types of older people, if I can call it that. Now, you've talked a lot in your work about how older people are othered by society. You know, there's still this idea of old people having pink rinses and hair nets or whatever the male equivalent is of those. You know, you could be a man with those. I'm not saying you can't. But, you know, that still is there. And, you know, when you say this phrase, old people, to me, I have an image in my mind, even though my mother, apologies to my mother, is definitely in that category now and does not have a pink rinse. How can we change this as a society? Do we need to think about older role models? Yeah, I mean, there has been quite a lot of effort made to kind of debunk the stereotype that if you're older, you are frail, you are vulnerable, you know, you've got a Zimmer from at home, and you are somebody who isn't attractive. And I think that the big issue is more about, in a sense, valuing older people, but also seeing that the aging process is not being kind of, you know, completely linear where you automatically get problems with your, you know, you you need your Zimmer frame when you're sort of 72. I think that mechanistic view of getting older is wrong. And I think the other point is that clearly people contribute in completely different ways to society when they are older. I mean, we've got a US president who's in inverted commas, relatively old. But there's also a lot of activities that people are involved with and people are working longer, for example. So I think it's more about ensuring that we don't discriminate against older people. We can go on to discuss that. But we also, in a sense, value and treat people. And I think the same actually does apply to younger people as well. There's a risk of demonizing younger people and that we have to be tolerant of the huge differences that exist within an an older age group, as it were. You've said this is a very expensive set of issues to look at for politicians. What are the areas that need addressing and money, you know, in an urgent sense? Well, there's there's obviously health and social care and, and successive governments have, in a sense, dabbled about how you can pay for that. And clearly, we will need to have a system in place soon for that. I think there's also issues in terms of making sure that public health works throughout the sort of life cycle, because clearly the the problems that are experienced in older age and will become extenuated when people live to 100 are often issues that, in a sense, come with you throughout your age, such as obesity, diabetes, and issues like that. So I think there is something about a holistic approach to aging which looks at public health, which also looks at allowing people to be able to flourish. There is something about having age-friendly towns and cities that kind of allow people to contribute and allow people to not have impediments when they go down their local high street. And I think there's also something about you know, the right support mechanisms in place. But that doesn't mean that 
everybody will need those support mechanisms. And the interesting thing is that, you know, during the pandemic, what came out was that there are a lot of older people who were kind of in one sense vulnerable. But if you look at the data on life satisfaction, older people actually were kind of able to navigate their way through the pandemic quite a bit because right. of whatever resource they were able to use. So I think it's 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 a kind of maybe an optimistic view, but we kind of need a, a, a kind of national conversation about this. And we also need policymakers to address this in not a piecemeal way, but rather looking forward and, and planning. There is a, a school of thought that says that our policies and our kind of infrastructure and the way employers work, there's a huge structural lag between demographic change and actually the right solutions. And some say that that is 20 years. In terms of this national conversation, what's interesting is a lot of the things you're talking about are things that need to be implemented to help people physically, because as we get older, physically, we become not necessarily less active, but our bodies inevitably change. But psychologically, older people have had, you know, lots of different experiences, you know, obviously dependent on class and income, of course. But as I said in my introduction, the old people of today, you know, had a very different youth to their parents' generation. Do you think that's something that needs to be acknowledged more? These are people who are active in many ways. You know, they've lived through a very different society. Yes. And there are lots of observations about how that comes out. There is a, a, a notion, and particularly in the States, of the concept of the radical old. These are people who probably, you know, experienced the Vietnam War, experienced quite a lot of social kind of changes and developments. And are kind of, in a sense, radical and provide a critique of society. And I think there are probably those people sort of in the UK who play a role and play an active role. They volunteer, they get involved in local politics and civic activism. I think the issue is having an approach that doesn't stigmatise older people, that recognises the differences that exist recognize that there are problems. I'm not arguing that everybody is going to have healthy aging and they're going to sort of succeed and, you know, do all sorts of things and be contributing effectively to their local communities, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's more that, that it's to recognize some of the issues that are facing, but also accepting that we need to have a kind of more general approach that kind of looks at age friendliness right across different public services, but in particular doesn't stigmatize people. Because I think that there is a lot of evidence to say that if you feel stigmatized, you behave like that. So people who are kind of not acknowledged as being in a vibrant position will often feel a lot worse. And I think that what we tend to unfortunately accept is that that kind of ageism exists right across different areas, not just employment, it exists within healthcare. The way older people are spoken to, for example, is a great issue of that. And I think that those perceptions are problematic because I don't think there's necessarily a, a kind of reflective discussion about what those things mean and the impact that that has. It's also, a, I think, the, the thing I find most interesting is that people who in inverted commas, are ageist and kind of work against older people, if I can call it that, are themselves at some point going to get older 
and in a sense could potentially suffer from those same challenges. So there is something about you treat older people as you would want to be treated in the future. In terms of ageism, you, know, you write too that it's a prejudice you still feel is allowed in society, you know, across the board in a way that other prejudices aren't rightly these days. You talk about this being fueled by a very binary idea of there being a complete split between generations, which obviously has changed massively. You know, just in terms of my work as a journalist, I write a lot about music. You know, the way people experience music between the generations has massively changed, partly enabled by the digital world, partly because of the way people have grown up and the things that they've been exposed to. So this complete split is almost like a psychological block that has to be beaten. How do we start to combat that thinking? Do we start to try and do more work between the generations? Yeah, I think that the risk that we have with older people is that there's a danger of ghettoizing people when they reach a certain age. So you kind of put them in homes because that's where you feel that they are best handled and supported. You kind of treat people in a way that doesn't necessarily provide an inducive way to get people to sort of interact. So the big issue is that if you are looking at kind of fostering that kind of contact between generations, you've got to kind of have that orchestrated at different levels. So, you know, there are implications for what schools do, there's implications for employers, there's implications for civil society, there's implications for government. But that intergenerational discussion is, I think, better for relations that exist. And I mean, where I've seen it work is where, for example, some work that I've been looking at, which is trying to design high streets for the future post-pandemic, is where you've got different groups of age groups together to discuss collectively what is the best sort of high street for the future and clearly there are going to be different needs there'll be different needs at different times there's something about accepting that you know there are sufficient places to sit down there's sufficient toilets there's sufficient sort of amenities there's the right sorts of shops and all of that and that discussion is better if it's done in a way that kind of is is between age groups because essentially you can hear what other people's perspectives are. I mean, I think there's a danger that we assume that younger people are kind of automatically not supportive of older people in some cases, but that, that doesn't happen when you kind of do it in a collaborative way. So I think there is something about fostering that kind of discussion. In, in organizations, in companies, I think that there are some companies that have been very good at developing a multi-generational workforce. They've kind of looked at what the, the, the good experiences between age groups can be and, and how that can benefit each, each of those age groups. And that actually it makes for a, a good working and productive atmosphere. But in a lot of cases, we don't allow that to happen because there are just prejudices and there's ways that people get kind of excluded and i think one big problem is the is media depictions and you mentioned that earlier we do live in a peter pan society and clearly the issue of you know the 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 anti-aging cosmetic market is a big market very influential and it's about kind of postponing aging it's about kind of not accepting that somebody who's 69 can be attractive and i think those those are fairly deep-seated kind of prejudices that exist and i think the big problem is how do you 
combat them. You can do it through positive kind of discrimination. I think there has to be a better awareness of ageism. Interestingly, in the States, there's a kind of a bigger movement around, which is about older people who are kind of age activists who challenge ageist practices a lot more proactively than what we probably have here in the UK. And that kind of does create a cultural change. It happens in other countries as well. I think in the UK, we we haven't quite developed that. So a lot of people don't think about those issues. And I think the big problem, it will be that unless you tackle these issues, you're not going to get a kind of harmonious kind of aging society with the right conditions for the future. COVID has, of course, amplified the need for a focus on older people's needs. What are the issues that we don't think about in that mix? Well, I think that what COVID demonstrated, I mean, first of all, there was the pretty terrible hashtag baby remover, which was floating around during COVID. So what that was, was a kind of prejudice that was on primarily on social media about that kind of older people were necessary casualties of COVID, that in other words, they were due to die anyway. And so therefore, you know, they were kind of expendable. Now you had that attitude around and there were some articles and there were some kind of stuff on social media that kind of exhibited that. But equally, we had, as you would expect in the UK, a very kind of good response to the needs of older people who were isolated and needed support, those who were shielding. But I think that whilst those things were swirling around, what we haven't had since then is a kind of debate about what are the issues in the Building Back Better agenda for older people. And I think that the risk is that we we obviously saw quite a lot of the inequalities manifested throughout COVID, which affected older people. They affected other age groups as well. We haven't really kind of continued that conversation about, well, well, well what are the implications for sort of better future for older people? And a lot of the recovery work that's being done right across the UK, and I'm familiar with in, in London and in the north of England and, and Wales as well, has had to kind of battle quite a bit to get older people's perspectives onto that agenda. And I think that's where the kind of inclusive recovery that you want post-COVID hasn't quite manifested itself. And I think that ironically, there are, you know, there are particular issues facing older workers at the present moment. They're the group that probably are second hit by COVID and its effect on on the on the labor market. Younger workers have kind of slightly got out of that position now. But older workers, many are exiting the job market, mainly because of redundancy. Some feel they can't get jobs. And I think those issues need to be tackled in a way that kind of addresses the right problems and makes sure that sort of, you know, there are solutions coming forward. We've obviously talked about the world of work. You've mentioned age-friendly cities as well. Housing for the very old is an issue as well, you know, not just care homes but assisted living how should we think about housing older people in the future 
you know, I'm I'm in my 40s now, I think about when I'm older. And, you know, will the care home model work for people of my age? You know, would we rather be living communally in different setups with, you know, you think of all people in care homes now, and there's an idea of how that exists. And will that work for younger generations? What do you think? Well, I think that the there's got to be adequate housing for older people. So clearly, one one issue is how do you plan the right type of housing provision for a population that you know you you, you will probably live into your nineties at least, I can predict, and so so therefore you will you will kind of have your own view about what you will want, and clearly there is a big trend for independent living with the right sort of aids and adaptations to allow people to live in their own homes. But obviously, there are older people who kind of need support and supported housing. I think that the big question is more about ensuring that there is the right choice and the right availability, and that that provision is kind of planned in the right way. And what what I mean by that is that I think the danger of... The danger of having a lot of care homes and supported housing for older people is that it, it does slightly ghettoize older people. And, you know, the, the, the risk is that you do it in the outskirts of towns or whatever. There has been initiatives which have tried to get sort of intergenerational housing in, in terms of development. So you'd have housing that's both for older people and, and younger people, and that being on high streets. And, with you know, we're perhaps seeing that trend now as a lot of large premises in high streets sort of becomes vacant. But it, 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 is, about, it is about the right choice, but it is about looking at imaginatively about what type of provision ought to be ought to be there. And I think that there will be a mixed set of views. I mean, there'll be some people who want the degree of peer support, from living with older people, there are other people that probably don't want that. And and it's, you know, we don't quite know in sort of 30 years time how those attitudes may change. I've already talked about this with a friend of mine who works with older people in her healthcare setting and takes uh, people with dementia to dance groups and music groups. And we've just, we've decided we're going to live in a commune and have daily discos. That's how we're going to yeah, yeah, age, yeah. age, age gracefully in that sense. Finally, how should we think about ourselves aging? You know, we're all aging. You know, you could be listening to this podcast and you're 18, you're still aging. It can be a scary thing to think about. But what positive, uplifting things could help us as we get older? You know, there's lots of benefits to getting older as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there is something about ensuring that as you get older, you're not in a position where you're kind of financially vulnerable. So clearly, you know, pensions and future employment of people having to work longer, I mean, the state pension age rises to 68 anyway in a few years time that kind of does need to be sorted out and there clearly you know there clearly will be inequalities but i think there is something about an attitude that doesn't have us following a kind of fixed you know you, you you're educated up to the age of 21 you then work and then you're you're retired so the, for a long time there's been the concept of the third age which is that th this is a period of time where people can kind of develop things they might want to do. It might be they want to continue working well into their 70s, but do it in a more flexible way. And that, you know, the, it, it, it's uh, 
they clearly, as you get older, you can't, you know, you can't necessarily run marathons. You can't kind of do the things that you did earlier on. But there are a lot of other activities that you can do. And, and I think that probably people don't sufficiently think about what it means for, for, for uh, you know, the, the idea of in so many years time, how you might sort of cope with that. And I, I, I'm of the view that, that there is a need for a, a more collective kind of discussion of those issues, but also there needs to be, you know, there, there needs to be a kind of age movement that kind of promotes quite a lot of that which kind of caters for particular needs you can there is a i think it's an app somewhere where you can you can do a diagnostic tool on yourself in the future so you can look at your capability for aging by putting in your health situation your financial position your kind of working career and what you've covered etc your network and whether you are whether you feel you're kind of flexible and sociable and all of that and and all those intangible assets and it will compute how 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 it thinks that you will be able to cope in the future now that kind of is 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 something that you know people may may like i think i think what it is it's down to individuals it's down to individuals about how they feel they can cope how they can handle change how they can deal with things that they want to be able to do and that they feel that they're in a kind of supportive environment. You know, that's why I think age-friendly towns and cities are, are are very important. But your point, I think, about, you know, you're talking with your friend and, you know, where you want to be in the future. I mean, clearly, you know, there will be generational views about things, as well as the fact that there's there's kind of life cycle changes as well. So it will be interesting when you are you know when you are 90 about sort of looking back how you kind of feel that your aging process has been and one would hope that you will be doing the things that you feel valuable the things that you feel in a sense give you that degree of learning and thinking and wonderment and and all of those things that and plus also that you're that your health is maintained. Well, let's um, have another podcast in uh, be 40, <laughs> 46 years' time and uh, we'll, they, uh, they we'll have a catch-up. They, <laughs> they won't be called podcasts. but yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we'll kind of beam in from some other dimension and yeah. have, a, have a virtual chat. Oh, thank you, Tim. That was fascinating. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. Give us glowing reviews on your favourite podcast app and spread the word by telling your friends. You can also support The Bunker Daily on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Making a small contribution gets you lovely merchandise, plus early editions of the podcast and more. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow for another episode. The Bunker Daily was presented by Jude Rogers. The producers were Jelena Sofinievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tuned by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.